0: Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out of had been circumcised, yet all the people Who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal, to this day. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes in parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, But they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Heavenly Father, we want to know You. As Jesus prayed in the garden, this is eternal life. That they might know You and Your Son whom You've sent. Help us to know You more, even through Joshua chapter 5, that we would have a right understanding of You. Guard me, from saying anything that might be amiss or from any misunderstanding of what Your Word teaches. And I pray that You would clarify Your purposes here again so that we might know You and worship You properly. We ask these things in Your name. Amen. We Westerners are a very myopic people, I would say. As we go through life, we tend to think of life always in relationship to ourselves. In a sense, uh, we tend to put ourselves at the center of the universe. For instance, we tend to think laws that are, are good, laws are good if they specifically benefit us. But if they don't benefit us, Maybe they're not so good. Or if the team that we're rooting for wins, then it's good. Also, think about the choices that we make. Primarily, the choices we make are based upon what we want our hopes, our ambitions. I tend to think even of what makes us angry. Often, what frustrates us is not necessarily because a right or Wrong, A sin has been committed, but rather we've been inconvenienced. Our plans have gotten adjusted because of somebody else getting in our way, but not necessarily because a moral failure has happened. And this tendency to be myopic um, or make judgments based upon our personal preferences has only been aggravated by the advancement of postmodernism into our culture, which teaches that there's really no such thing as objective truth, just personal preference. What's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. It's what it teaches. And it's not necessarily wrong to allow our personal preferences to influence us. That's Somewhat normative, I'd imagine. But I think over time, as we function that way, we can slowly begin to become deceived. And what I mean by that is that it does not take us long to forget that we are not, our preferences are not the center of the universe. And we begin to make choices not based upon what God would will for us but rather just what we want. We begin to think that we are the fulcrum of the universe. And the theological impact is seen by the fact that most people in our culture believe that they have nothing to fear from God. Or little to fear. But this is because the God that they worship is one of their own creativity, one of their own imagination, not the God of the Bible, but one that they have constructed in their own mind. A God that they have invented that prioritizes what they prioritize and loves what they happen to love. And as scripture has been abandoned in our culture, along with scripture, so has a knowledge of God been abandoned. Our culture has no idea Who God really is. Most people would say, yes, I believe in God. But what God? If we truly understand who God is and what he expects, we would be far less cavalier about our sins. And we'd be more devoted to his commands. Chapter five of Joshua. Gives us a vivid example of how people respond when they're aware of who God really is. That they are living in the presence of a holy God. And in particular, a God that is coming in judgment. Let's look at the first point in your outline. The wicked have a fearful expectation of judgment. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted. And there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. Now notice, all of the kings of the Amorites and all of the kings of the Canaanites have the same response. It says that their hearts melted. The word means to dissolve. To just decay, to fade away—it's figurative, and it actually directly corresponds to what Rahab had said in chapter two, verse eleven. And it also reminds me of what Proverbs twenty-eight one says: "The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion." Or Proverbs twelve twenty-one: "No ill befalls the righteous." But the wicked are filled with trouble. It says also that they no longer had any spirit in them. What it, what it literally means is they, they lost their breath. It's as if the wind had knocked, been knocked out of them. And so this crossing of the Jordan by the children of Israel literally stuns the kings of the Canaanites. God has sent them reeling in fear. All that Israel needs to do now is just simply to deliver the knockout blow. They're they're ready to just fall over. The situation reminded me of the story in Judges chapter 8, when the judge Gideon had captured some rival kings, Ziba and Zalmunna. It says in chapter 8, verse 20, Gideon said to Jether, his firstborn, "Rise and kill them." But the young man did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a young man. Then Zeba and Zalmunna said, "Rise yourself and fall upon us, for as the man is, so is his strength." And Gideon arose and killed Zeba and Zalmunna, and he took the crescent ornaments that were on the necks of the camels. So, like Jether, Gideon's son. All that Israel needs to do now is simply have the courage to strike. The kings of the Amorites and the Canaanites are on their heels in fear. But in order to deliver that knockout blow, however, Israel needs to be prepared. And so they prepare themselves by being circumcised. Verse 2, at that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeah Hararoth. And this points back to Genesis 17, when God spoke to Abraham, repeated the covenant with him, and gave to him circumcision as a sign. And he commanded Abraham that all of his male offspring were to receive circumcision. In chapter 17, verse 13, he says... So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So the penalty for not being circumcised would be being cut off. Because this is the sign of the covenant. And presumably this command had been kept all the way up until 40 years prior to this period, when the Israelites refused to enter the land after they heard the spies' report of the giants in the land and how terrifying the people there were. Because we see in verse 5, it continues, Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, Yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. And then the explanation for the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us a land flowing with milk and honey. But yet, this command was given that any who did not receive circumcision would be cut off. So, why not the circumcision? Why did they remain uncircumcised for 40 years? I believe it's because circumcision was the lack of circumcision. Rather, the lack of circumcision was a mark of their parents' unfaithfulness. Their parents had cut themselves off in a sense, from the covenantal blessings. And therefore, they were no longer free to give that covenantal sign. The account of Israel's judgment of their unfaithfulness is found in Numbers 14. And this brings us to point two. The unfaithful experience his discipline. So go ahead and turn your Bibles to Numbers 14. I'm going to look at a few passages. We won't read all of it as much. As, as, as beneficial as I think that might be, we just don't have the time. It's a few chapters earlier. Numbers 14. I'm going to begin at verse 1. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. So they had just found out the report of the spies. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not have been better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. And then God pronounces judgment upon them. And I'll read beginning at verse 28. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and all of your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me. Not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh and Joshua, the son of Nun. But your little ones... Who you said would become a prey, I'll bring in and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days a year for each day. You shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this will I do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. See, in spurning God, the Israelites had forfeited their opportunity... ...to enjoy most of the blessings of the covenant of Abraham. And apparently at this point, that's when circumcision ceased. Because the people had cut themselves off from their inheritance. And it's not until that 40 year period of judgment is over... ...that circumcision is reinstituted... ...for those who would enjoy the fruits of the land. So the reason there needed to be this mass circumcision was because for 40 years the nation had been under judgment. They had been stripped of the honor of bearing the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Similar to how a a disobedient police officer has his badge removed from him as a sign of shame. I was also reminded of the Dreyfus affair of the 19th century. Some of you might have. Remember that from your history classes. What happened was Alfred Dreyfus, a Jewish artillery captain in the French army, was falsely convicted of selling secrets to the Germans. And in fact, he had been framed. And being Jewish, it just simply made him an easy target for his foes. But what happened is that in a public ceremony after he had been convicted, Dreyfus had his... Uh, Military insignia torn from his uniform. He had his sword broken and he was paraded before a crowd that shouted death to the Judas, death to the Jew. Because of what he had been convicted of. And like Dreyfus, apparently the children of these Jews would not be allowed to receive the sign of the covenant physically because they were bearing the shame of their parents' unfaithfulness. Instead of receiving the promised land, the unfaithful would be forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. But God, who is always faithful to His promise, raised up their children instead, and their children get to fully enjoy the portion of the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 7, So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So what lesson can we learn from this? I think in particular, it's that we cannot take disobedience to the Lord's commands too lightly. Israel should have known better. In fact, turn in Leviticus, to Leviticus chapter 26. And read with me the warning that God gives them if they choose to be disobedient to his commands. This is Leviticus 26. I'm going to begin at verse 14. The Lord tells them, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. And I will break the pride of your power and I will make your heavens like iron and your earth like bronze and your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins and I will let loose wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your road shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you're not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, Then I also will walk contrary to you, and I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied." But if in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons. You shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and I will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. Then I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your city shall be a waste. And yet notice in verse 40 how God will respond if they just repent. Verse 40. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled. And they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. So, in all of this, all this severe judgment that God promises will come upon them if they refuse to disobey is because they keep refusing to repent. God takes no pleasure in disciplining them. He takes pleasure in their repentance. And all of this is meant to bring about them turning from their sin and worshiping Him. God's severe discipline is aimed at at accomplishing repentance and restoration. But it's still severe. Don't ever believe that just because you've been saved, that that means that you've been saved From all the consequences of your sins as well. Yes it's absolutely true. And never forget it. What Paul says in Romans 8.1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is absolutely true. So we'll not have to bear the wrath of God in hell. But the natural consequences of sin. He still allows us to bear. Those consequences often, as we see for Israel, often have a direct effect on our families, even on our friends. God allows us to taste the consequences of our unfaithfulness, as he says here, so that we might recognize how utterly shameful sin really is. It's not a joke. God does not take sin lightly. And he wants us to recognize how horrible it is. And so he disciplines us that our eyes might be opened to what we're doing. Notice what he says in verse 9. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. The recommitment of circumcision is what leads to this rolling away of the shame that they had experienced. He calls it the reproach of Egypt. The reproach essentially means to have shame or disgrace. And since the text doesn't explicitly state what the reproach of Egypt is specifically referring to, commentators disagree as what it might be pointing at. Some suggest that this Disgrace is just referring to the fact that they were in slavery in Egypt, the disgrace of slavery. Others believe that since they were slaves in Egypt, the Egyptians wouldn't let them be circumcised. But verse 5 tends to counter that. The immediate context of the wilderness wandering, though, and the actual the grammatical structure of the passage seems to suggest that it has something to do with their disobedience. Which led to their 40 year wandering. So it seems best to understand this reproach of Egypt as their wanting to return to the land of their former captivity, the land of their shameful slavery, which they said in Numbers 14, let us go back to Egypt. So, in a sense, they had been spiritually stained by Egypt. And they were unwilling to have that shameful stain removed, preferring to go back rather than to simply move forward with God's covenantal promises. And so this mass circumcision was serving really as this national recommitment to devote themselves to God again, to wholeheartedly follow God. And this uh, recommitment to God's covenant is such a momentous event that they actually name the place Hill of Foreskins. So they have two monuments there at Gilgal. You have Hill of Foreskins and you have the Twelve Stones. Now, if I was taking my family on a tour of the Holy Land and I had an option of going to see the Twelve Stone or the Hill of Foreskins, I'd probably choose the Twelve Stones. But both have significance. One, remember what God has done for you in allowing you into then, his might and his power, the other, remember what God has done for you in rolling away the reproach of Egypt. Which is what God has been wanting to do. It's what he's looked forward to for the past 40 years to roll away this reproach. This brings us to point three, how the faithful respond, being aware that they live before a holy God. We've already seen how the wicked have a fearful expectation of judgment, and how the the unfaithful will experience his discipline. And here we see that the faithful wholeheartedly commit themselves to God. Look at verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land. Unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. There was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So three things actually get highlighted in this section. The celebration of the Passover, the ceasing of the manna, and the eating of the produce of the land. And each one of those things points to a new beginning. That Israel is starting over again. The reproach of Egypt has truly been rolled away. They're no longer under the judgment of the rebellion in Numbers 14. And they, because of that, they no longer need the manna. Because God has brought them finally into the land and they can enjoy the fruits of the land itself. So even the celebration of the Passover actually points to a fulfillment of God's promise to bring them there. If you recall back in Exodus 13:5, Moses told them when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. So the fact that they get to celebrate the Passover is a mark that, yes, we've entered the land. We're going to have the Passover. Everything's starting anew a new beginning. And we too ha- like to celebrate new beginnings in our culture. We have baby showers or yeah, adoptions. To some extent, even uh, graduation or retirement is a celebration of looking forward to a new beginning. And whereas a couple of those modern celebrations might be a kind of a celebration of the past as well, this celebration that... Israelite is enjoying here is just the opposite. They're celebrating that the past is done with and they have just the future to look forward to if they would remain faithful to God. So they're ready to start over. That's the point. Israel's ready to start over in their faithfulness to God as they enter into the promised land. And I think all this reminds us of the fact that we can always recommit ourselves back to the Lord. I think of my wife and I, we constantly, I think it's every once a month probably as we review all the plans that we had have, probably half the things that we were wanting to accomplish never get accomplished. And we frequently find ourselves being tempted to discouragement, but we're encouraged when we remember, hey, we can recommit ourselves again and try to do better the next time. It's the same thing for the elders as we get together. We have our our retreats, and we get together and look at the year in review, and we look at what did we get accomplished? And yeah, there's things we get accomplished, but probably more often than not we think, oh my gosh, there's so much that we still didn't do. And we commit ourselves again to wanting to be faithful to the Lord. You've heard of the phrase, this is the first day of the rest of your life. The reality is we all hit points in our life where we just wish we could push a reset button and start over and although we can't change what's happened in the past we can change what we're committed to we can always do what israel's doing here which is recommit our life to following god with all of our heart and yet we may fail but we also we might not We might be faithful. And I think committing to the Lord and His purpose is what would honor Him the most. The second way the faithful respond is not only do they commit themselves to God, but they humbly worship Him. Look again at verse 13. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no. But I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet. But the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. This final section of chapter 5 is actually just setting the ground for what we're going to see in chapter 6. Their first battle against Jericho. It's also immensely clarifying regarding where we stand before God. Seeing a warrior standing before him. It's understandable that Joshua would ask the question that he asks. Are you for us? Or are you for our adversaries? But notice again how God responds. No. Two things need to be noted here. First, the fact that God is not on either side. He is certainly not fighting for the Canaanites. But he's not fighting on behalf of Israel either. This is his battle. He is the one who is coming in judgment upon the land. This is his coming in judgment against the Canaanites. Israel just happens to be a vehicle of his judgment. Similar to how later on in Israel's history, Assyria becomes a vehicle of judgment against Israel. And then after that, Babylon becomes a vehicle of judgment. And then later on, because of what Babylon did to Israel, Persia becomes a vehicle of judgment against Babylon. So God is accomplishing His purpose of discipline and judgment, but He does so using various nations. Here, He's using Israel to accomplish His judgment upon the Canaanites for their gross sins, as we've talked about before. God's response to Joshua tells us that Israel's destruction of the Canaanites is really not so much about giving this gift of land to Israel as much as it is God's coming in judgment upon the Canaanites. And he's giving this plunder from that judgment to them, to those who serve him. Which is why when Israel fails to serve him later and worships false gods instead, they are brought under severe judgment. So, point being we should never ask the question, whose side is God on? That's a nonsensical question. Rather, we should be asking, who is choosing to serve God and who should expect His judgment? God does not support anyone's side. God is for Himself. And so, those who serve Him can expect His blessings. Those who rebel against Him Can expect his judgment. And note also what he says. I have come. What an interesting thing to say. God has always been with Israel. Remember the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant went with them in their wanderings. His presence was there. So I don't think in saying this is to comfort Israel. That's not his point. Rather... Judgment seems to be in view. I have come. The phrase seems to prefigure the ultimate coming of the Lord in judgment. This is, after all, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ whom Joshua is speaking to. We know that because of how Joshua responds. You are standing on holy ground. He falls to his face flat in worship. Angels do not tolerate worship. We see that in the book of Daniel. This is the Son of God Himself. The same Son of God that came and took our penalty on the cross so we wouldn't have to endure the wrath of God. But it's also the same Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is coming again in judgment. When we talk about the second coming of Christ, what that primarily is focused upon is not the blessings of his rule upon the earth. The second coming of Christ is primarily focused on his judgment upon uh, the wicked nations. Just think of Revelation chapter 20. We don't we don't get almost all of Revelation is about the coming judgment. We don't get the blessings of Christ's kingly rule until Revelation 20, the very end of the book. And even then, there's still more judgment to come. The point Jesus is making to Joshua here is that he's coming in judgment and he does not take sides. He is the side. One can either choose to serve him or face his judgment. And notice how Joshua responds again. Like Moses, he takes off his sandals and he falls flat on the ground in worship. When people are aware of who God really is and where they stand before this holy God, that is how they properly respond. They could respond like the wicked and fearfully expect his judgment. Or they could respond like the unfaithful and expect His discipline. But the faithful commit themselves to God and humbly worship Him. And if people don't respond this way to God, which is what I'd say the majority of people in the world are like, they don't properly respond in either of these three ways. If they don't respond to God in this way, All that it means, really, is they don't know God. They don't know who God really is. They don't have a proper view of God. Whatever God they believe in is not the God of the Bible. Again, it's a God of their own imagination. But they're not going to have to do business when he comes with the God of their own imagination. They'll have to do business with the God who has created all things and upholds all things with the power of God. Of his own might. That's the God. That they will have to face in judgment. And if this is the case. They have put themselves. In the first category. And they might not tremble. In fear. Before him now. But they will. When he comes. Just like the Canaanites. Saw it coming. Coming. At the beginning of this chapter. Jesus came the first time. So that we wouldn't have to face his wrath. When he would come again. This is the only way. To escape the coming wrath of God. And that is that we would trust in Jesus' work on the cross. And that we would commit ourselves. To full heartedly serve and follow him. And that, that we would. Humbly worship Him, even as Joshua did. Let's pray. Again, Heavenly Father, we would know You. We don't want to be deceived. We don't want to think that we're worshiping the true God, the one true God, and yet at the same time actually be worshiping a God of our own imagination. We would know you. And so I pray that you would give us greater clarity, greater conviction into all aspects of your character. Not just your justice and your wrath, but also a greater understanding of your love and your kindness and your mercy. As it's also displayed in this in this chapter. God, help us to know you that in our knowledge of you, that that knowledge would Drive us in all of our decisions that our knowledge of you would be what delineates what is right and wrong good and bad preferable or unpreferable that we would be truly men and women of God not just men and women of America or any other country help us to know you and if it takes discipline Discipline us that we might not come under judgment. But we would know you and we pray for your mercy. And God, if there's anyone here that does not worship you, that does not know you, I pray that they would understand the, the dreadful condition that they're in. That this would not just be merely words, merely abstract truth, just another philosophy amongst a world of a million philosophies. But they'd see that it's real, that you are real, and that what you promise will come to pass. Because you will be faithful to uphold your holy character. We ask these things in your name. Amen.